What is up, Shilyang? What's up? Thanks for having me. I'm here with Shilyang Tang, the CIO of Ledger Prime. Um, perhaps you know one of the most the, the lesser known but most incredible traders in the crypto space because you know even on the show or in general people tend to know about VC investors. They tend to about the, the macro guys because they have a lot of time to tweet. But when it comes to the actual trading, the market making, meaning the people that might be on the other side of the trade, that's Shilly Yang for you. So really excited to have you here today. And you have a wild background even before joining, uh, before founding Ledger Prime. You were at Merrill, at UBS, um, and Bank of America. You've always been kind of like the market maker. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can walk me a little bit through kind of like, you know, how did you even get into the world of like, you know, really professional trading, market making, high frequency, and so forth? Yeah, of course. So um, went to engineering school, did engineering, pre-med, realized very quickly, did not want to be a doctor, did not want to be an engineer. And this was 2006, 2007, uh, kind of pre-2008 crash where know, quants were, were going berserk on Wall Street. And mm. basically, uh, anyone that could program, anyone could do a bit of math, you know, come on board, come to Wall Street. And so intern at a couple of uh, quant HFT desks. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, you know, this is 2008, very unlucky, but landed on the desk at the time that uh, kind of funny now, uh, it was called the Automated Market Making Desk. Uh, <laughs> AMM. Was, yeah, AMM, the original AMM. But basically back then it was uh, options, right? So derivatives, mm -hmm. options, HFT, we're doing algo market making, electronic. Um, and actually it was kind of the perfect time. Like the world was falling apart, volatility was rocketing. Um, and that's when you would be, you know, electronic market maker, right? Mm -hmm. That's when dislocations happen. So we did very well, actually, in 2008. We, I was at Merrill Lynch. We were acquired by Bank of America. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after another year and a half or so, uh, I joined basically the exact same desk um, at UBS. It was mm -hmm. called Electronic Volatility Trading. Uh, both desks were you know, part of kind of the prop trading group back then, just um, you know, internal market making, trading. Um, did that for many, many years, about four years. Uh, and then kind of the, all the Dodd-Frank uh, regulations kicked in, right? Mm -hmm. So no more prop trading, everything got unwound. Um, and so I went back to uh, Bank of America, essentially, and uh, uh, um, still did vault trading, but more on the kind of customer-facing institutional side, right? And so block trades, trading with like pensions, hedge funds, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, yeah, and did that, you know, did that for a year before I decided to, you know, it was about late 20s, decided, well, you know, kind of getting slightly older, wanted to build something, not just sit in front of the screen and trade all day. And um, I, I founded this company called World Cover. Uh, it's about 2016, uh, uh, co-founded with, with a you know, very close friend from college. Uh, we stayed in touch in quant trading on Wall Street over the years. Um, and essentially what we did was we sold parametric insurance. Mm -hmm. um, took satellite data. Uh, basically packaged it into drought and like flood insurance, mm -hmm. uh, micro insurance products. So like an example is, hey, doesn't rain for 10 days. Um, person that bought the insurance, you know, gets a payout. Um, so automatic, there's no assessment. You're not going to the field and assessing crop damages, right? And there's a product market fit with um, smallholder farmers in developing countries. Mm -hmm. And so we essentially packaged it all up, um, connected, buyers who were smallholder farmers in Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, and basically sold that to uh, reinsurers or asset managers that wanted risk and returns that were completely uncorrelated to 
the stock market or, or other markets in the mm -hmm. world, right? Um, so I did that for you know about three years and, and realized that um, you know I, I probably couldn't. I was a COO at the time. I couldn't continue to go to you know these countries you know every month and basically run this business for the rest of my life. Um, what, what, what drew you to it? Was it the uncorrelated nature or was it the like the impact? Yeah, I think I think it was a combination of both. I, it, it was kind of like um, I did derivatives for many many years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I understood the math behind it. Um, I could create these products. Um, but I was searching for something more than just, you know, trading derivatives, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, th I think the impact nature of it was uh, unique and, and what drew me to it. Yeah. Um, you know, we went through Y Combinator, we raised a bunch of capital. Um, ultimately, it didn't work out. Um, I left, you know, for a, a, a couple of years before, um, you know, the company decided to kind of hang it up. Um, but yeah, I think you know it was it was a great experience, and all of it together, I think, really helped me to um, make you know Ledger Prime what it was you know it, it is today, um, mm -hmm. and, and make it a success, right? So I think it, it was a very unique, and, and you know wouldn't really you know definitely wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, awesome. So so how did you then find that segue f from that into the world of crypto? Yeah, it was 2017. Now um, Bitcoin. Crypto was always something I followed along. Mm -hmm. um, 2012, 2013, trading my PA, small, but mm -hmm. you know when you're on a trading desk and you see this asset that's moving up, you know, thousands of percent, um, it's something that you pay attention to. Right. Uh, and uh, funny story, you know, my wife and I like bought some Bitcoin back in like 2012. Uh, not a lot, really, not a lot at all. Um, we had like some you know engineering friends who were really close mm -hmm. to it or mining it, etc. And we ended up like paying like, well, in retrospect, pretty dumb. But we sold it. Um, luckily, we, we sold it before you know Mount Gox collapsed. But we sold it and decided to pay for our wedding with it. Uh, so it kind of worked out. <laughs> um, but then you know the whole like bull, uh, bear market in, in 2015, 16, et cetera, happened. Um, still kind of paid attention, but you know wasn't as you know I was running World Cover yeah. and um, wasn't as distracted. And, and so. 2017, things were heating up again. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to go back into trading, go back into the markets. And I did a little assessment of the markets in crypto and discovered that there was a whole ecosystem outside of just, you know, Bitcoin, right? And right. so uh, could I actually port over a lot of the same strategies that I was running in you know, traditional markets uh, to crypto? Like, was there sufficient liquidity? Was there mm. sufficient counterparties, exchanges, like operationally, you know, how did it work? Um, and we, my, my CTO, who I, you know, now my CTO, but who I used to work with mm -hmm. also at Merrill, um, we, you know, discovered that, you know, hey, like, I, I think we could actually make this work, right? Right. Um, and it was very fortuitous because uh, I had met the Ledger Holdings people. Mm -hmm. Ledger Holdings was a holding company that owned Ledger X at the yep. time. Uh, it was backed by a bunch of traditional fintech investors, Lightspeed, Google Ventures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they had this kind of like a shell entity called Ledger Prime mm -hmm. um, that they were looking for someone to basically take over and build like an asset management business, like yep. a market maker to, to market make on Ledger X, but eventually grow into an asset management business. Mm -hmm. um, I knew the founders, Paul and Juthika, um, who honestly, like I, I own my, well, kind of Ledger Prime, my career too in crypto. Um, they, you know, we're friends, we're, you know, we, we knew each other from college um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I came on board and basically, you know, my CTO and I, we, we launched Ledger Prime uh, for the first year, year and a half, just 
managed ledger holdings capital. So yeah. on a prop basis, um, rebuilding a lot of the derivatives and option strategies that we were doing in traditional markets, um, building infrastructure, database, et cetera, certain and connectivity. Um, and then in 2019, after kind of a year and a half of track record, we decided to go out and, and raise outside capital. And, you know, that's what you know, Ledger Prime is now. You said 2019? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, so, you know, for, for reference, because um, not everybody, A, has maybe even touched crypto derivatives, but even less so back in 2018. Right. And, you know, I think we onboarded into Ledger X, it might have been like early, like Jan 2019, something like, I don't know, like it was yeah. fairly early, but... Even back then, I mean, right. spreads were crazy. Yeah. Volume was very low, and you 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 come from a world where you're doing massive size, probably yeah. uh, on on equities. Like so, assets with significantly less vol, like a fraction of the vol, right. and a lot more liquidity. Yeah. Now you're coming to an asset with massive vol and even right. less liquidity. How yeah. do you how do you manage a risk on that level? Yeah, I think um, we quickly realized that whatever we learned in traditional markets in terms of modeling counterparties like efficient markets just you know toss it out the window right <laughs> like there's a whole notion of like put call parity uh you have one vol surface for like all your options we realize like hey like no one really is pricing these things on like put call parity and also if you wanted to take advantage of it the cost of capital is like so expensive in crypto mm -hmm. um with like fully collateralized options in the u.s that um it just doesn't work right so like uh yeah you can you can clip like you know, two percent arbitrage or five percent arbitrage, but like you're in crypto to not clip like two percent, right? Yeah. So because um, you're risking a lot more than that. Yeah. So so we realized like, hey, like this is a new paradigm. Just you know, you you you're. It's it's almost like I would say how I would imagine at least how trading emerging markets were uh, in like the '70s or '80s or, or they're just the early markets, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're almost like not trading the market you're trading your counterparty mm -hmm. to a certain extent so like mm -hmm. you understand the landscape you understand what everyone else is doing yeah. why they're doing it when they're going to do it mm -hmm. um and you know that they're not like necessarily pure pure vault trade this is back then right yeah. now it's a little different but back then they're not like pure pure vault traders from like wall street like eking out pennies and like making everything extremely efficient um you figure out what they're doing and then you optimize for that right and you mm -hmm. kind of throw out the math models out of it you know like you're supposed to do xyz to make money from it but like you kind of throw that out the window um and you trade your counterparty basically and so you know at least on ledger x right we were you know quoting things with like two vol surfaces we were trading the calls and the puts differently uh we knew who was going to come in on a weekly basis who was trading like mm. the one to two year options um, you know, the miners that were either hedging or doing yield enhancement, the hedge funds that were coming in and, and doing like um, replacements, right? So getting leverage with like yeah. long data upside calls. Um, so that, that's yeah, what bear we market. Well, I remember bear market was pretty big for like leaps. Um, I just remember like it always made the headlines when some big yeah. fund bought like, you know, a year or two years out for Bitcoin at right. these ridiculous strike. Like, but, but back then it seemed really yeah. ridiculous when yeah. Bitcoin was at 5K and you're buying a 40K strike. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yep. And and so then I guess because you said you're figuring out based on what what they're doing and why, so you're just identifying kind of like how much would this person based on the person's expectation of the win of this trade, how much would they be willing to pay exactly. for it? Yeah. You know. Yeah. You, like, you you kind of have to back out into well, this is why they're doing it. This is when they're going to do it. Well, how much can you extract as a market maker mm -hmm. in terms of the price, right? Yeah. That they would. Um, so it's it's kind of like bartering, like in, in a way, right? And like. Um, 
so that, that was what the you know the market and, and now you know the markets are are you know a lot I would say a lot more efficient still yeah. you know relatively in the options market at least not you know as efficient as equities and, and FX etc but um, you know Deribit has has grown tremendously mm-hmm. um, LedgerX has grown since the early days there's Bit.com there's a bunch of like options faults um, and everything and, but like and, and the OTC markets but um, yeah I mean it's it's still small compared to you know traditional markets and so how I- so that, that was what it was like 2019. You just mentioned, you know, now there's different platforms. I think the, the mergers of ETH as, as options was maybe 2020. Um, I would say it, it um, we did some OTC in 2019, 2019, but 2020 was probably when it really, really started to, um, you know, gain some steam. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think last year was the first time where not on the actual dashboards, but like OTC, you started having altcoin options yep, and whatnot. Yep. How how far do you think we are from having an actual mature options market? Where in the traditional world, in equities, I think it, I, I don't you probably know the number better than I, but it's something like a hundred x. Like for every dollar mm-hmm. in, in spot, there's a hundred dollars yeah. in derivatives. Mm-hmm. In crypto, it's almost like, the inverse. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's maybe like three to five x the size of spot um, in crypto. I would say like. Oh, so we have become bigger than spot already. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's great. But like um, in traditional other markets, generally you're looking at at least like thirty to fifty x, right? Yeah. So and and like in in crypto, there's really only Bitcoin and Ethereum that are listed and, and traded actively, right? Correct. Um, Deribit's going to list Solana options very soon. Um, you know, I, th- I think that'll take off, and um, other altcoin options will will soon get listed. Um, they're already listed on Delta Exchange, um, but it's not like it's pretty thin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the LTC market, they are being actively traded. So, you know, I, th- I think we're still a little bit away. Um, but, it, you know, I, I would say we're, we're kind of hitting the, the hockey stick growth part. Got and what do you think leads to that? Um, I think as more traditional investors come into the space, mm-hmm. um, people that understand and have the knowledge of pricing it correctly and using options correctly mm-hmm. um they understand the value of it yeah i think historically in crypto part of the reason why options hasn't really taken off is the emergence of perpetuals right so mm-hmm. like perpetuals um they came on board in an early stage in, in crypto uh they're basically cfds um cfds you know are well, they're, they're legal in the us and and there's a use case for them abroad um but really, perpetuals really, really took off uh, in crypto. And I think retail, um, like perpetuals is a great product, right? There's no like expiration. Uh, it's easy like to just buy and sell it. Yeah. Um, a lot of liquidity. There's tons of leverage. You don't have to worry about expiration and rolling it. Uh, whereas with options, you have to choose like the strike, the expiration, and like all these other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and settlement. And so I think a lot of retail was drawn to the perpetual product to get directional leverage mm-hmm. uh, whereas in traditional markets look like the robin hood and, and all these options that were being traded in robin hood people tended to gravitate towards options to kind of get the same kind of like leverage right yeah um, but they don't have the you know, access to like a cfd market in like traditional markets that right. like retail has in crypto and so um what you saw instead was in, in options in crypto is more people looking at for yield enhancement, right? And so right. they see a high ball asset, they see a high premium, and so they end up, you know, generally looking for yield enhancement. And you know that, that there's a use case for that, but most of the leverage speculation, you know, gravitated towards the uh, the perpetuals market, right? Um, and so you know that that was kind of 2017, 18, 19. 
But as more traditional investors um, and funds and, and use users um, of options come into crypto, I think mm -hmm. you know then we'll start to see you know a shift and migration. Got you. And now there's a whole new emerging subsector which is DeFi options, meaning it's it's on chain. Um, we were pretty early on that. You know, in the early days, there was product protocols like you know Hedgic and Octus and Open and so forth. Find out that the early guards, so to say, never really made it that far. Open is seeing pretty decent traction, although I think they kind of switched their model where it's not even traditional options anymore. It's like pools. Um, but I know you guys are also working with a number of different on-chain options protocols. Um, why do you think even the biggest one so far compared to everything else in DeFi have maybe like 100 million TBL? Even good ones have like 20 million, 30 million, which in DeFi yeah. is pretty negligible. Sometimes you have a farm coming out the gate with a billion dollars. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is it just like a product market fit or? Um, well, there's about like 10 of them now. Yeah, <laughs> They kind of just sprouted. So I think one is liquidity is getting spread out, right? I think mm. if you have like in, in crypto, really there's um, liquidity is still dominated by Deribit options, right? Yep. And so Deribit is, you know, 85, 90% of the market. Most of the volume is there. Um, I, I think we're, we're at the stage where we'll probably start to see some consolidation mm -hmm. um, in, in kind of the vaults. And we already saw some, right? I think um, was a tap finance that basically merged with side options. Um, and I think to collectively, um, there is actually a decent amount of TVL um, between all the, the kind of options mm -hmm. vaults um, and the AMMs of options. Um, but right now, the liquidity is pretty spread out. Mm -hmm. um, and so one, you know, ribbon and friction, I, I would say kind of have a lot relatively uh, to the other vaults. But um, yeah, I, I think the problem is that liquidity has been kind of spread out a bit. Um, but, but I think we'll, we'll start to see that consolidate over time. So you got, do you guys utilize that either as uh, from the OTC provider side or even from the, the market neutral fund side where you say like, hey, you know, let's say somebody on Deribit wants to, or, mm -hmm. or Paradigm, whatever, wants to buy or sell from us at this price, but hey, we could at a way better, you know, then sell it right back on chain. Is that something you, you guys do or is it yeah. still kind of hands off? No, we, we definitely do it. So we're investors in a bunch of uh, options DOVs, and mm -hmm. uh, we are market makers for pretty much all of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, we generally, you know, like the flow. Mm -hmm. um, I think historically, my view at least, is that even on Deribit and many of the centralized exchanges, um, options wings mm -hmm. um, are, are mispriced, right? I think because going back to what I was saying about how People generally use options for yield. Yep. What you find is um, the front end and the wings generally are, are pretty cheap relatively mm -hmm. uh, because there's more sellers and buyers from the market, right? Right. Uh, and market makers know that. And, and so they can kind of depress the, the market or depress the wings a bit when they're quoting it. Um, and as we know, in, in crypto, there's significant jump risk in markets at least mm -hmm. a couple of times a year. Um, so we, we've historically found that uh, markets um, in, in crypto options are underpriced, um, especially shorter data than the wings. Um, and then in the DOVs, um, with all coin options, uh, generally as a market maker who's trading volatility, we've started, initially I think people were aggressive out of the gates, every market maker was trying to like one up each other mm -hmm. and just like outbid and win the flow. But we've reached a steady state now where I actually think that um, the market has settled down and vols for altcoins through the options vaults um, mm -hmm. from volatility perspective probably are a bit cheaper um, 
for you know depends on the protocol, but but um, are cheaper than probably uh, where they should be pricing in if they were on like a order book, right? Um, and that's because market makers market makers have kind of wised up. We know we can price it on a flat ball. We know that um, it's one way flow, uh, but that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of a win win because we're providing liquidity. The people that are depositing into uh, these DOVs, um, they're not doing it on leverage, right? Mm-hmm. So you know a lot of people complain like, hey, they're gonna blow up X Y Z, but like they're not gonna really blow up because you're to deposit, let's say Solana to sell like a Solana call through. Mm-hmm these vaults, uh, you have to buy the Solana and it's fully collateralized, right? So like, if you're gonna sell Solana 50% up, if, if Solana goes up 50%, you're probably gonna sell it anyway in the market. Mm-hmm. So why not sell a call option uh, sure. and generate some yield? Or let's say, you know, Solana is gonna go down 50%, you're probably gonna buy it. And so why not sell a put option? Right. And it's fully collateralized, so it's not like you're gonna get liquidated or blown up. Um, so that, that's fine, right? Um, so they win, they get yield. Uh, market makers win because we're buying cheap ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're happy to generally continue to to do that, right? Um, and then going back to what we were saying, yes. And the, and the vol is cheap because of the current state of the market, which it is, or or because of the, the default products, they happen to have lower vol? Um, I would say cheap because, you know, we uh, generally these are like out of the money kind of wingy options. Right. Um, we can generally, what we find is depending on the vault, but a lot of the times we can actually win now. Um, uh, some of the auctions pricing it below, let's say, realized vol. Mm. Um, historically, you know, options should trade above realized vol. Mm-hmm. Um, implied trades above realized, but a lot of the times we actually find that um, now they're, they're trading below realized. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, it's not even accounting for the fact that like you're buying wing options, so generally there should be a smile um, because out of the money options, when it jumps, when the market jumps, historically the volatility should be higher, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, you know, able to buy it for below realize and you're able to buy it on a flat ball surface. Um, but we're providing liquidity, like it's a thin market, like there's not any, it's not like as a market maker, there's risk to us, right? Like there's no out for us. It's not like there's a liquid avalanche or phantom or Solana exchange out there that we can lay off this risk. We have to Correct. warehouse it and these are like weekly options. So we're warehousing this gamma risk um, and this data basically is just decaying, you know, every day for a week and that's it. So th- there's risk to both parties, um, but I think you know the market is reaching an equilibrium where we're buying it cheap enough, but you know we're getting compensated for the risk that we're housing. Okay, so you, when you say warehousing the risk, um, you you said like for the for example, an option, you said an option on Avalanche, the mm-hmm. token on the Avalanche yeah, token, right? Yeah. So, so do you hedge that at all? Like by, let's say like if you're- We, we delta hedge it, right? Gotcha. So like when we're trading the volatility, we, we basically gamma hedge, we're, we're scalping like the realized versus implied yep. ball. Um, sometimes if we buy it cheap enough versus let's say Bitcoin or Ethereum, we might spread it off. So mm-hmm. we find ourselves, let's say long Solana vol and then short Ethereum vol mm-hmm. because the spread, you know, for some reason, you know, implied uh, relatively has gotten cheap or, or expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can do a relative value, you know, implied vol trade. Um, but most of the time we have to hold it into expiration. So gotcha. Right. Yeah. Because I was going to say, you know, like if I, you know, let, let's let's say we take it back to May of last year. Uh, Luna was at four dollars right. at that time. You know, and we bought a lot on spot. But let's say, for example, I said, hey, you know, Shaliang, I want to buy a ton of Luna calls. And maybe let's say you chose to do so. It's not like this. It's, at that time, it wasn't a big market, and Luna went from like four dollars to eighty-five dollars. Yeah. What would be your process for, like, you know, as a 
as a market maker and also like running a market neutral fund, like how do you hedge that risk out? Like practically speaking, so like you you yeah. now wrote those options for sure. a million Luna token, let's say. Yeah. So this is something that I learned um, as electronic market maker, but more so on the institutional side, just mm-hmm. for that one year. Um, so so we were obviously making markers for very large funds. Right? These are like the mm-hmm. Bremen Howards of the world. Yeah. Um, very very smart um, fundamental investors that had an edge um, mm-hmm. in theory um, and would buy options, trading, earnings, or events, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so what we learned quickly was um, who are the smart investors, who are kind of the investors trading vol, um, why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're a market maker, you, don't, you wanna trade against either the dumbest investors mm-hmm. or the smartest investors. You hate the investors that are 50-50 because you don't know they're actually right or wrong. But if they're the dumbest, well, you can just make the market for them and you know you're always gonna win. Hmm. But if you're trading against the smartest investor, you know you're always gonna lose, well, you can now just take the same position as they are. So let's say you sell Luna, let's say I know that you're like the best investor and you're now you're getting extremely bullish Luna calls. Yeah. So, okay, I want to you know maintain a relationship with you because I wanna know what you're doing always. Mm-hmm. And so I'll make an option, like a market for you. I'll sell you Luna calls all day long, whatever you want, um, and I'll sell it to you. And then after I sell it, well, I'm gonna basically delta hedge the calls on like a one delta and buy mm. as much Luna spot, mm. perps, futures, whatever as possible. So like if I'm selling one Luna call, maybe I'll buy like two Luna like spot, like gotcha. physical, right? And basically get along with you. Uh, knowing that like, hey, like, you know, you're smart, you've done the work, and clearly like you have a good thesis. I'll probably spend the time, some time learning about it, and if I agree, then I have conviction as well, right? And right. I'll sell you the option, that's fine. I'll lose on the options, but I'll make more, you know, basically buying like the spot or purse, whatever, as a hedge in the same direction as you. Right, because, well, essentially like, you- well, if if it is a, if it is a direct relationship, you know the counterparty versus let's say something like paradigm where you can anonymize it, where right. you wouldn't know that exactly. who is behind it. Exactly. That so trading w- like anonymously is really not great, right? Mm. Like there's no information on the flow. Um, you know, we bake it into the edge, but sometimes it. it, it I'd rather be wrong than like mm. trading in a market where it's like a coin flip, basically. Yeah. Right. So. And I mean with. You know, people can say they're good or bad, but with every trade they put on with you, you get a right. better idea of right. like you know how consistent are they. And if they're yeah. like a, yeah. you know, five-year counterparty and like they're right. they're right. really consistent yeah. or they have some yeah. really big home runs, then like I mean that's pretty much free offer for you too. Exactly. Where you say like, hey, you know what? I'd rather do you know also go long on Luna. Right. I sell the calls. I ca- capture the premium, and you know whatever's wherever the strike price is, you know that as well. And what the, the the risk you know is of course like if Luna tanks, but some of that will be un, you know mitigated by the premium you collected, right? Um, and again, like it's you have information that others won't have, right? Right. Yeah. Which um, have you ever? So so you said you are uh, this well. You said before we start rolling that you're more like a multi strategy fund at this point. Yeah, I mean we're we're a hedge fund, right? We have outside investors now. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we took some of the holding company capital in 2019, mm-hmm. and then we raised much more uh, additional outside capital. Um, and so we're a multi-strat, but most of our strategies are quantitative and systematic yeah. and market neutral. Market neutral. Um, and so examples, as I'm sure you know, like market making, arbitrage, basis, cash carry. Uh, we do a lot, obviously, in options, electronic market making, as mm. well as OTC market making. Uh, past year and a half, we built out DeFi as well. So like DeFi, CFI arbitrage, um, yield farming, liquidity mining, 
Um, and then a small portion of our book is, is like early stage, um, like venture, right? So mm. like part, more like partnerships, venture, but basically things that complement um, our market making and liquidity provisioning right. uh, strategies. Like you mentioned the on-chain options right, exactly. where it's like, well, yeah. you're already doing it as a business. Right. There's a whole new venue where yeah. in the ideal case scenario, you're able to market make for them, make money in the market making and flush it with liquidity. Right. Gains in venture value. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So like we noticed early on in DeFi was like when we were first just building out the pipes and providing liquidity on these projects was a lot of these projects. Really, all they needed was market makers <clears throat> and liquidity providers yeah. right, to bootstrap their liquidity, bring on customers, clients, etc. And so it made sense to align interest to either just invest in them. And so mm -hmm. we benefit from both. Um, or to basically, you know, do some sort of market making deal. Right? Yeah. So. so, so, so the reason I, I, I segued or I asked about, you know, the, it being a multi-strategy fund at this point, is like you have this great access to alpha. You've been counterparty to m almost m most big crypto shops, or if not all over the last five years, at some point between, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 now, six years, you know, um, Something I'm curious about is why market neutral? You know, I mean, like I, I personally, yeah. I, I obviously, yeah. I love crypto. I'm long as hell because right. I think there that's where the the big big money's made. I'm yeah. I, I don't know what the returns look like on market neutral. I've heard people, some people make you know 30, 50, right. which is great in equities, right. but in crypto, right. what makes you want to leave the um, the directionality on the table? Yeah, um, honestly, in retrospect, um, I probably shouldn't have done a market neutral fund when I first <laughs> launched uh, in 2017. It was probably like pretty stupid, mm. um, but it was what I knew, right? It was mm. kind of like what my CTO and I, we were quants, we were systematic, like we weren't, like we never came from like the fundamental investor world. We didn't come from like the VC world. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't, you know, I'd be lying to myself, my investors, if I really knew that space well. Mm. Um, and so we looked at the landscape, we saw the opportunity and we decided to do it. Right. Um, yeah. and so, um, one, I would say that all strategies have some directionality, right? Either s first order or second order. Yeah. So like if you're a VC or long short, you have directionality in the first order. If you're a market neutral fund, you still have some directionality, right? Um, what you notice in crypto is, Hey, when markets are going up. In, in a bull market, volatility is higher yep. generally. And when markets are going down in crypto, generally volatility is lower. Uh, when you're running a market neutral fund, typically you're exploiting inefficiencies in the market. Yep. And generally, um, those inefficiencies are enlarged or, or more prominent uh, when you're when there's a lot of volatility. Yep. And so, really, you know, we we do still have some directionality, right? Um, we do tend to do a lot better in in like bull volatile volatile markets mm -hmm. um as opposed to like markets now where it's kind of just dead and flat line i was gonna say i assume that there is and correct me if I'm wrong there's probably more option buying in in the bull and more riding in the bear yeah definitely because people yeah. are looking for like some yield right now because they're sitting on it anyway yep. versus in the bull people are so that the greed kicks in where i've exactly. seen insane i think i think in, on derivative i've seen like eth at like 250 mm -hmm. or something like that and yep. now it's yep. at 60 i think yeah 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 so like january 20 january 2021 right uh that's when Bo uh, bitcoin kind of blew through like december they blew through 20k january blew through 20k started running up mm -hmm. like a ton of just like 30 to 40k calls were printed on derivative like massive um that actually helped drive a lot of the i, th I think spot movements because market makers were sold we had to constantly chase and hedge and 
Um, the market picked up on it and, and pushed it higher. Um, but yeah, you know, as the, the reflexivity, right, of, of crypto is like no other asset class. Mm. Um, and, you know, with it, like when the market is going up 10, 20, 30% a week, you don't really care about market efficiencies or like pricing options correctly or like spot arbitrage, whatever. Like, like if you're a fundamental investor, like yep. you're just slapping up trades left and right, like buying, rolling, taking profit, like who cares, right? Yeah. Um, but as a result of all that action, it creates a lot of market inefficiencies. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, some of the HFT guys pick up on that. And, and so, you know, the profits are, are generally wider during those, um, you know, time periods as well. Got you. And that's actually a great segue into another topic I want to discuss with you, which is, I think, one of the one of the core features of crypto right now is, unfortunately, interest. Hmm. I mean, like, when people think of, like, what can I do with crypto today? It used to be stuff like, you know, Ave Compound, now it's Anchor, Yield Farming. Uh, literally, one of the core products of crypto so far is that, like, hey, I can get 20% of my stablecoin, right? Unfortunately, I hope, you know, soon, like, there will be many more, many more killer use cases, but one of the core killer use cases that that catches people's eyes is the interest rates. And a lot of times, you know, the, the question I get from LPs or even just people in general is like, you know, where does this yield come from, you know? And so because you said there's so much reflexivity, you know, we've seen in, we, we've seen so many sources where that's the grayscale off, the basis trade, you know, anchor, farming, and so forth. What do you think is the core source of the net interest rate we have in crypto? Mm -hmm. And how sustainable is that right now? Um, I think, uh, yeah, so, so I think it depends on where you're looking, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, if you're looking at like the centralized exchanges uh, and you're looking, let's say, you know, take an example like one, what is it, March, April, May of 2021, mm -hmm. when the cash carry rate was like, for Bitcoin even, was like 30%, Ethereum was like 40, 50%, mm -hmm. right? Basically, you could just buy spot, sell futures, and lock in like, 30 to 50 percent right that's insane um like basically risk-free mm. uh well there's a reason why like futures were getting pushed out so much um relative to spot markets right, right. um i think a lot of it was due to so in general historically there, there's been a net shortage of cash in crypto mm -hmm. right um people always start for cash Ex explain that so people generally want more uh leverage okay right? oh leverage gotcha yeah and so well if there was ample cash and lending and like cheap capital in crypto, well, people can just borrow that and basically buy more spot. Um, mm -hmm. But because there isn't that, well, they have to kind of go to the derivatives market and mm -hmm. they have to buy perps and get 5x, 10x, 20x leverage or buy futures and, and get equally, you know, amount of leverage. And so if you're doing directional and you really think the market is going to continue to go up, um, well, then fine. I'm willing to pay 10, 20, 30% annualized interest rates, basically to get that 10, 20, 30x leverage, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you know, I really think the market's gonna go up 50% or 100% a year. Um, fine, I'll pay 20% of interest or 30% of interest, right? Um, and that's fine. Um, and we saw that in the bull market because markets were actually going up 100% or more and uh, people were only pay 20% interest for you know that basic leverage on exchanges. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at that, um, like on centralized exchanges, then that's where a lot of the yield comes from, right? And like, there's also a discrepancy between US leverage and, and um, Asia leverage, let's mm -hmm. say, right? Like if you're looking on Deribit, yeah, it was 30 to 50% futures over spot. If you're looking on CME, it was a little bit less. Um, 
maybe 10 to 20 percent because in the u.s the cost of capital is so low mm -hmm. uh very very cheap back then uh if you're like a if you're a, a, a traditional market fund and you see the cme bitcoin futures trading 10 to 20 percent above spot and it's regulated and you feel comfortable enough um and you have the infrastructure to trade it then perfect like i'm gonna make 20 percent a year on this like this is amazing um but if you're in asia right and your cost of capital is so much higher and you know you you know your your hurdle rate is not like two percent like free money mm -hmm. your hurdle rate is more like 10 or 15 percent then you're not really going to care about like some 10 or 20 percent like arbitrage right cash cash sure. right you, you you're, you're gonna like like doesn't matter right? um, i'm gonna do yield farming i'm gonna do something else that's gonna make me 50 or 100 <laughs> percent. and so there was less supply of capital in like Deribit and these like offshore exchanges versus like a CME, right? Yeah. And so you started to see this difference in CME markets versus Deribit markets for like cash carry rates. Um, and uh, well, now I mean it's all dead, right? Like whatever, it's a, it's a bear market now. Like people care a little bit less about cash, and so and, and also like traditional money flowing into the ecosystem really crushed the the, the kind of like cash carry rate. Um, but back then, that, that explained, like, so on centralized markets, that's where a lot of the yield is coming from. Now, if you're looking at DeFi, uh, well, I think uh, a lot of it comes from VC money. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, uh, yes, there, there's tremendous use cases from, like, AMMs, and there's fees generated. But I think a lot of the newer protocols, um, when they first launch and they're able to, to come out and say, like, hey, it's 40, 50, whatever percent, even in stablecoin pools, yeah. I think a lot of it is basically, you know, capital that they're kind of fronting themselves. And mm -hmm. where does that company capital come from? Well, you know, it comes from investors, right? And so it, it's fine, right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with it if they really believe that it is a product that will reach some escape velocity. Uh, but you're basically, you know, doing uh, um, kind of upfront marketing for it, right? And so you're you're trying to attract capital from uh, whatever users. Uh, people that want to throw into a pool or people that want to like trade on the exchange, like you have to attract them somehow, right? right. Um, and so you have like, just, you know, as one way to do it is, is basically, you know, high yields, right? And so um, that, you know, if you're looking at DeFi, well, you can say that a lot of it, um, yes, it comes from fees in the longer term, but um, a lot of it really just comes from, you know, VC capital that has pushed up the token price to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I think the, there, there, there's two big elephants in the room. Well, one is kind of like irrelevant at this point, but it was like BlockFi, for example. You know, I mean, it's very, and I mean, I, I, we, none of these you have to comment in case you ever, you know, because I know crypto is a small world. But yeah. like, you know, with BlockFi, for example, you know, back in the day, they, they gave you like 6% on Bitcoin. Um, you know, I think, well, actually pretty normal stable coin rates, but I just like every week I get an email from them. It's like, oh, we lowered it, we lowered it, we lowered it. And, and you kind of know that, you know, it was just VC money that made that 6% because why? How do I know that? Because, well, there's no fucking 6% on Bitcoin anywhere. So right. where does it come from? Right. And then the, the, the actual bigger one that's, you know, more present now is Anchor. You know, Anchor is, you know, we, we you know, Luna is one, one of our biggest positions. I'm, yeah. I was a fan of Luna. I, I kind of am a fan of Luna. The only thing is that there is certain, you know, again, like every, everything comes from somewhere. So the question is, you know, where does Anchor Yield come from? Well, it's pretty simple. They're putting Luna into the anchor reserves and like it's getting spent at, I believe, uh, 10 million a day, something along those lines. I mean, they're, they, they're burning through over 100 million a month right now. Um, it's almost depleted the almost 4 billion they put in there. 
So where do you see the, and, and right now people love that in the bear market because they say, well, everything is going down, so I might as well use T and earn some yield on it. Mm-hmm. Where do you see a bottom, com- like sh- because you've seen cycles before, you've traded 2015 bear market, you've traded the 18 bear market, visually, maybe, maybe you can describe how, do, how does the relationship of leverage and market cycles look like? Like, is there a certain point where you say like, hey, based on funding rates or based on the demand for leverage in general and open interest and so forth, this is usually what a cyclical bottom looks like and maybe what the cyclical top looks like? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, one I would say like, just, just touching a bit on the anchor part yeah. um, is, um, 20 percent is kind of just arbitrary right like yeah. if you think about it it kind of just it's marketing yeah it, it's it's just you know it's tw- it could be 15 it could be 25 like somehow the market fixed it on 20. um i think it's because like i think there was some curve pools that had like you know 13 yeah. 14 15 16. yeah you had to be higher than that right and but but the whole ecosystem i think as a whole and it's healthy right i, I think everyone's going to realize that like 20 percent probably is not like sustainable long term mm-hmm. but also a market neutral fund like when we first started um our target was basically you know 30 percent net three plus mm-hmm. sharp right like sure the market we did a lot we've done a lot better than that over the years but like over the long term we knew that probably even that was not sustainable right mm-hmm. um because like traditional money is going to come in sophisticated capital is going to come in like a 30 percent market neutral fund in like equities is like you know over many many years is like unheard of right and like we've already seen it like spot arbitrage largely has disappeared um cash carry rates have gone down from 30 percent to like five percent now um and like even DeFi yields across the spectrum has come down right everywhere Mm -hmm. so we and actually i think i think that's healthy in the sense that like we're resetting market expectations um as traditional money is coming to the space it's also resetting expectations in terms of like what um people are okay with Mm -hmm. as a return um, target. Um, and I think in a way, you know, that might actually save the whole ecosystem because we're not going to be so striving and like really needing like to, to, to do everything that we possibly can to um, as a fund hit 30% mm-hmm. or as anchor hit 20%, let's say, right? I, I think, you know, there's going to be a point in time where everyone's going to take a look and like, hey, like there's a lot of money in this space now. Um, it's becoming mature asset class. It's going to trend and converge with traditional asset classes. And the traditional asset class is not asking you to consistently make 30 or 20% every single year, right? But but is that what's happening? I feel like it's it's almost going more in the opposite toxic direction where you have, let's say, Tron say, you know what? We'll do 30% USDD. Yeah. Let's go, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Here's $10 billion. I don't know where they got the $10 billion from. Yeah. They probably dumped a bunch of TRX. <laughs> yeah. And saying, we're, we're backstopping at 30% interest rate with 10 yep. billion, right? Yep. Because 20 clearly wasn't enough. Right. Well, you got to do 21 or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that, that's a good point. I think, you know, there's always going to be another project that tries to run up. There's also going to be a corner of crypto that is going to kind of like, I don't know, excuse me, like balls to the wall. Yeah. It's just like as much like leverage or whatever as possible. But on the whole, I think as space becomes institutionalized, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's healthier yeah. in terms of like the lower kind of expectations, right? right. Um, in, in terms of like a bottom in the market, um, yeah, 2018 was brutal. 
you know, and, and 2018 was like, there was no DeFi. There was no really like much of options to be traded. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, you know, some perps, but like not a ton of perps. So like, you know, you were kind of just sitting on your hands, right? Mm-hmm. Like there were some interesting events like the Bitcoin cash, whatever, forks and events, et cetera. But like, uh, unlike now, like, yeah, it's a bear market, but like at least there's 10 different things that I can look at and like keep myself busy with, mm-hmm. right? Like back then, really just punting around like Bitcoin and ETH and maybe yeah. a couple of alts and like not even much of a like derivatives market. And that was kind of it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure like it will, you know, no, nothing's kind of like a carbon copy. Mm. Um, but I, I think that until we, we start to see crypto kind of, um, I mean, it's a risky asset, right? I think it's proven itself to a certain extent it's a risky asset. It's the, the correlation right now is, is pretty high, mm-hmm. right? Until we, we start to see that bifurcate a bit, um, and maybe we, we never will, unfortunately, but until we kind of see that bifurcate a bit and and if it doesn't, then until we kind of see a stabilization in macro assets mm. um, and markets, um, you know, it's going to be hard to kind of call a bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because like it's it's gotten to the point where you know you can't you can't have the best of both worlds. You, you can't like be like, hey, the institutions are coming and like great, like open the floodgates, like please come in and you know legitimize this asset class. But then now you have you know Tiger Global that's basically you know in the space and they're you know. In crypto, they're in macro assets, et cetera, and you know it's one book, right? Mm. And so they have to rebalance, they have to hedge, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, when you mix, you know, crypto as an asset with other assets, and it's the same pool of capital, you know, unfortunately, that also means that the correlation is probably going to increase, right? Mm. And so you know, it, it's it's trading more like other assets, um, and so for it to be a bottom, you know. If you're just talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, which are kind of the largest assets, um, until kind of I, I see a kind of uh, a bifurcation of, of how it performs and, and trades versus macro, mm-hmm. or until macro really stabilizes, then then it's going to be hard, right? But I think like now we've you know again, unlike 2018, where correlation won across everything, we're starting to see a lot of projects still perform pretty well in this you know uh, uh, environment, right? Like see, like single project names idiosyncratically um that are you know doing a lot better than the overall kind of um crypto asset right i'll say for you maple i know exactly (laughs) maple's great right and there's you know there's lido there's like a couple of like the the tarot ecosystem projects and and others right and that's great i think that's another sign of a maturing um asset class as well and Mm -hmm. you know that's why you know you have a great fun and, and that's why like there's long short guys in the space now and uh, because there are opportunities like this unlike right. in 2018 where really like unfortunately because now there's money. real products right yep. where there's real products real customers real money flowing yeah and it's no longer just you know a bunch of white papers and yep. so like you know if a specific a unique team is actually shipping and you know just crushing milestones then yep. why shouldn't it attract more investors and more you know yep. more traction now while, while it might be hard for you to you know identify that like on a macro scale maybe we can like size it down more to like individual instances you know we both traded through some crazy liquidation events we had the covid crash which was just all asset classes but then also i remember and i think we hung out like right around those days in like may april of yeah, last year yeah, yeah. where we had um 
it, at the time it was the biggest liquidation event in crypto history, I believe, with like you know, 19 billion wiped out in, in a single day or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I, I, I remember on some of these assets, like DeFi got hit brutally because people were just like chanting that like DeFi was coming back again, like new, ne the next DeFi summer. Like YFI, I think, went from like 50 or 60,000 to like 90,000 and then cascaded down to perhaps 10,000. And then there was like singular wicks where within like 20 minutes, some of these DeFi assets lost 30, 40, 50%. As a, both as a trader and also as a market maker, like how, do, there, there's two parts to it. So we'll, we'll start with one of them. How do you manage the psychology of it in those moments? Um, and then the second part is like from a mechanical perspective, like the fuck do you do, right? Like right. What, what do you actually practically do when on a five minute chart, you're making 10% moves? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I learned a lot. Um, so like, yes, we've been around since 2017. In 2018, like, yes, the markets were volatile, but um, there weren't as much, uh, I would say, derivatives in the ecosystem mm -hmm. back then as there is now. Um, 2020, March, in retrospect, you know, what we did at the time was we basically shored up our balance sheet, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't know what was going to happen. We kind of, you know, the fund was kind of with, with year one with, with uh, of outside capital. Mm -hmm. We just kind of hit the one year anniversary. Um, and we basically um, uh, uh, pull back a bit, right? Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, it was probably a mistake. We, we, you know, it was a great time to be a market maker, HFT. We probably should have pushed more of our capital um, across the ecosystem, even levered up and taken advantage of it, but we didn't really know what the system, like the, the, the risks of a collapse. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of pulled back a bit. Um, uh, made sure we weren't over levered. Um, you know, we were seeing like Deribit liquidation funds was depleted. Mm -hmm. We were seeing like Bitmax was like completely down, frozen, yeah. right? With and like we adaptive. Was, yeah, we didn't know what the collateral like lenders and borrowers could have been in, de and they probably were in default. Um, mm -hmm. the, and and luckily the market bounced very quickly, um, and saved I think a lot of borrowers actually. Mm -hmm. I think if the market stayed down in the three k four k area for months, I think we would have seen a ton more people default. Um, so we didn't, we didn't know what the collateral damage was and we just needed to shore up um, the balance sheet and our investor capital. And, and so we kind of pulled back a bit. Uh, but I think we, those are all learning experiences. And so in May of 2021, mm -hmm. um, when it happened again, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think we felt comfortable enough looking at that event that like, hey, like the market is way more mature now than it was in March of 2020. Mm um yes. way less macro headwinds too yeah yeah way less macro headwinds um insurance funds like healthy borrow lenders you know generally ecosystem way healthier like we just gotten through like a massive bull run uh the year before balance sheets are healthy this is kind of just like an idiosyncratic liquidation event of li like leverage flushing mm -hmm. the ecosystem but you know it, it's fine We're, we'll survive from this um there's no like permanent damage right um, and so, you know, and during that time, I think having learned the lessons of, of you know, March 2020, um, we, you know, stayed out in the market. If anything, we would kind of increase our, our footprints um, mm -hmm. and it worked out. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I think there, there's kind of positive negatives of, of leverage and, and liquidations and everything. But, um, 
you, you, you kind of have to recognize like the, it's like situationally, right? Like mm-hmm. where, where we are. Um, and I honestly like just taking a step back, like liquidations as a strategy in crypto is probably one of the most lucrative yep. strategies like ever, right? Like since the beginning of time, since perps, um, it, it's been like very, very like profitable, right? Mm-hmm. And now with DeFi, like as margin and leverage start to be created in kind of the rails on, on DeFi, you mm-hmm. need liquidators. Um, and again, as you know, right now it's not as often, the volume isn't as much, et cetera, but like if it ever becomes, you know, as a, a, a liquid or, or, you know, trade heavily as, you know, traditional uh, markets, then, you know, liquidations are, and liquidators are needed um, on DeFi. And it's again, gonna be extremely profitable strategy. Right. And especially since leverage is becoming also more systemically like integrated DeFi itself, you know, yeah. early movers. And that was like Alpha, Alpha yeah. Finance, where it's like leveraged market making. Essentially, yeah. you have um, what's called even with Luna, you can like with B Luna, you can borrow against it. People put it into Anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so like, you know, they're they're literally borrowing Luna to get the stable coin that is backed by Luna. So the instability of Luna itself makes UST less stable. Um, you have, um, there's just an, a number of, you know, and I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, what's called, um, uh, we talk about this all the time, reflexivities, a lot of reflexivities in DeFi. Um, do you expect a Plax one in this cycle still, or do you think like most of the, the shock has been done and now we're more in a slow bleed phase? Um, you're talking about the general kind of like just macro, the DeFi. Yeah. Well, no, more so DeFi, like yeah. like DeFi in general. Like, do you think something like, for example, like the Curve War, CVX, or Anchor, as we talked about a second, like, yeah. are those big? Like, especially a Curve with you know now there's four pool and like you know um, there's just so much Ponzinomics going on with with these new stable coins. Do you think that can have a big enough impact to have an impact on crypto itself? Yeah, and I, also I, what would be the opportunity since you said liquidations is a great strategy, right? Um, I think if we, and, and, you know, fingers crossed, I I don't, I don't think the macro environment is, uh, I mean, yes, it's, it's, you know, looking dire right now, um, Mm -hmm. and absent of, you know, some sort of like, uh, I mean, at at one point, I guess with kind of everything that was going on, like Russia and Ukraine and everything, but like outside of that, um, I'm more optimistic Mm -hmm. that um you know we're not we won't see another march kind of 2020 crash again um this time i think i don't think the market is bottom i think we will see a bit more corrections um i think there's gonna be a bit more pain ahead both in macro and and thus also crypto Mm -hmm. but i'm not expecting like a wick down to like 10k Mm -hmm. or whatever right and but if we were i i do think um it could get very like interesting for many many DeFi protocols, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um, interesting. The, the, yeah, the, <laughs> I mean, the, the easy ones are like what will happen to you know Terra, right? Yeah. Like I, there's a lot of money behind it, right? Like it's not just like the Terra ecosystem. There's a lot of traditional money um, investors that have a lot of balance sheet that have um, that really want to see it succeed and, mm-hmm. and not fail and so like if you're going through these different lines of defense like that that's a lot right yeah um so really will take a systemic shock that will prevent 
um, these large players from deploying capital to really buffer up these different ecosystems um, for it all to kind of crumble down, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's not just what's already there, but like, you know, there's a lot of crypto firms and traditional firms out there that have a lot of money invested in these these kind of projects. And when push comes to shove, I think they, I mean, we already saw it with Wormhole, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they will step in. Um, so like for it all to fail, I think you need something that would prevent them. And, and that would be some large, large macro unrelated to crypto. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so you pretty much need somebody that will stop the tigers and banes right. and A's and Z's and so forth to not backstop, which right. is right. which is currently happening. Yeah. Um, you know, earlier you, you mentioned that essentially like the it's the desire for leverage, the desire for cash, so to say that is you know causing bull markets and bear markets. Or I want to figure out is is it that bull markets cause a desire for cash, or is it the desire desire for cash that's causing bull markets? Um, yeah, I would say it's not the, the desire for cash doesn't necessarily cause um, bear or, or bull markets, mm-hmm. right? It's it's kind of a symptom of it, mm-hmm. right? Um, in a in a bear in, in a bull market, everyone's kind of like cash stock, right? Because mm-hmm. like we know the market's going to go up, and so you just want to get as much exposure as yep. possible, um, both in terms of directional, but also in terms of market neutral funds, because we just need balance sheet to like do all the strategies and, mm-hmm. and take advantage of everything, right? So like everyone wants cash. Um, so it's more of a, a, a symptom. Um, I think over the longer term um, between bear and bull, I think it just comes down to a transfer of who's holding the assets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's a cycle, right? You go through investors that put a lot of money um, and then the token gets launched and, you know, yes, different investors have different time horizons mm-hmm. um, and you know retail investors obviously have a different time horizon as well and you for, for like kind of a, a market to um, you know kind of bottom out uh, as you know you know um, you essentially need to you know flush out the the kind of shorter um, uh, 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 time horizon kind of investors right mm-hmm. um, and that's fine that's part of the part of like the, the the nature of of cycles and, and markets and everything else right? but when it, so the, so that's the, that's the question then like you know where do you see that now i know i know you said you think there's still more pain ahead i think when i looked at utxo of bitcoin for example last mm. i think we're already at an all-time yeah. low of sub yeah. one-year holders yep yeah i would i would say bitcoin is actually pretty like it's surprisingly done very very well relative to like the nasdaq and mm-hmm. some of these like large macro um assets right mm-hmm. uh, and yes even on chain it's actually very very healthy um and i think like you know just looking at bitcoin um i think it's done extremely well and it's actually pretty healthy mm-hmm. but when i when i look at like a lot of the uh, let's say non-bitcoin or ethereum um other like token projects especially um, l1s have really gotten mainstream sure. recently uh, but also just the projects right gotcha. uh, even on top of it like you know like these are like the 2020, 21 vintage projects, right? Mm. There is a lot of unlock that are happening. Sure. There's like 10 to 15 projects in every single like subsector out there. Um, not every single one of them is gonna win, right? right? And so unfortunately, you know, that those projects probably will just die a you know slow death over time, right? Right, yeah, um, our, our internal joke is that like, you know, we really don't need the fourth decks on the 13th chain, yeah, which yeah. there's like, you know, there's five decks on every single layer one and like yeah. it doesn't even fit on one page of DeFi polls anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so. And like the, the thing that maybe kind of scares me a bit is 
the 2017-18 vintage, um, back then a lot of projects didn't even have a concept of like an unlock or mm -hmm. like it was a pretty short unlock. And mm -hmm. so like, okay, everything unlocked at the same time, flush and like wipe clean everything and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas like now, you know, everyone kind of wised up and was like, hey, you got like a three to four year unlock, right? Um, linear vesting, every right. month we're getting linear, some more yeah, dumping. Linear vesting, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Uh, but like that just kind of slows the bleed, the yeah. or the inevitable. Um, and so, you know, well, in 2018, everything flushed pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, it still took a couple of mm -hmm. years, but now we have the cycle of many, many years of projects that are just gonna like, with no traction or no team anymore, um, are they just gonna like, you know, be a weight on the whole ecosystem for like three, four years, right? Um, yeah. But, but with the emergence specifically with what you offer as an OTC desk, you know, don't, how much of that do you think is already priced in since you are able to, for example, like short against your bag on FTX, you're able to buy puts yep. on it yep. for Ledger Prime, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think a lot of it, um, if there is a liquid, I mean, I think you, looking at the data, you, you kind of see like a difference between token projects that have a perpetual or futures market versus mm -hmm. a, uh, a token project that doesn't, right? I think right. like as a perpetual emerges, it enables you the ability to hedge. And often you see with those projects, uh, you actually see like those projects kind of like, unless they're like the leader in the mm -hmm. subsector, you, you kind of see those projects like underperform to a certain extent, right? Um, because like the, you know a lot of the investors are actually able to hedge out you know some of their exposure, which you know creates you know some weight on um, the overall kind of uh, uh, directionality of, of the asset, right? What's your either your boldest or most contrarian? take on i can, can be specific token for let's say the next 12 to 24 months is there any big names you think they're not going to make it is there you know um huh, contrarian um you know i uh, i think in maybe taking like recent events um i'm, I'm not I think there's a lot of path dependence. Path dependency is very important in life, right? Everything, and mm -hmm. it's especially important in crypto. I think Luna launched at the right time and really mm -hmm. got traction at the right time in like a huge, huge bull market, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe time will tell, but maybe they'll be able to reach escape velocity in time before everything comes down, right? And you know, I'm hopeful for that. But I think as you have other ones kind of copy, and this is probably not that contrarian, but like. Um, like Nier, for example, right? Nier, yep. I'm way less bullish on them, uh, you know, able to kind of pull out the same thing because they're launching in the middle of a bear market. Correct. Um, and there's just way less capital and hype and everything around it. And that kind of, th there's a cost to that, right? Yep. And so, you know, hype and, and bull market and capital and everything, all of that um, can support, um, mistakes or problems or, or a balance sheet. But in a bear market, um, things can come down, you know, very, very quickly. And yeah. so uh, we'll, we'll see. But um, if macro weakens further, um, you know, it could be, you know, again, um, you know, pretty, you know, get, get very interesting. So, yeah. Uh, one last question for you. Um, earlier, when we first started, you know, um, on the background, you talked about how you left traditional you know trading because you felt that you didn't want to sit, sit in front of a screen the whole time and trade and i'm asking this question because like i felt this myself too you know i wasn't trading professionally at the time i was trading 
pretty much I trade my way through college. I started in like 2012, and then by 2016, I kind of got tired of it. I was like, all you're doing is like moving money from left to right. Yeah. And I started a startup back then. It was like you know crowdfunding. Um, what motivates you now? And kind of like you know, what's your why um, yeah. behind trading? Yeah, I, th I think. Um uh, well, one of one advice, and I actually credit um, you know uh, CMS for for saying this recently mm -hmm. on their Twitter. They're, 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 I think it was Dan, right? He was saying like, if there's one piece of advice after trading like for 12 years, is that um, don't become a trader, go build something, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I and I do recommend everyone young to um, try at least to to go build something. Um, and yes, like we are building something. We're building you know a firm, right? We're yeah. building a fund, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I recommend people to build something, you know, um, uh, 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 I, I want to say like tangible in a certain sense, like, you know, build a project or at least, you know, try a project and, and do something that um, you can kind of see and, and, you know, have like a customer basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that adds a lot of perspective. Um, and you can always come, the like market will not disappear, right? Yeah. You can always come back and always be a trader. Um, but try something different if all you've done is, is trade. Um, in terms of what motivates me now, I think a lot of it, honestly, like, look, we've, we've been in the markets for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you can probably retire if you wanted to. Yeah. I can probably <laughs> retire if I wanted to, right? Like, it's not like I'm going out there and trying to buy, like, a yacht or, like, a, you know, a bunch of, like, mansions, right? Like, that's not really what... I'd it's a bear market after all. <laughs> yeah. So like what really motivates me actually is probably like like all the friends and like honestly like the employees um, like that I've kind of like my mantle has always been I want to work with my friends and I really try to hire like my friends over yeah. time. Um, because when I'm like 80 or 90 years old uh, and like one like I have a fiduciary duty sure but like my friends are also very very smart and so yeah. I think like they're actually the right people to, to hire. But like when I'm like 80 or 90 years old, I'm looking back, like I think it's more about like the experiences, the memories and everything. And like, like crypto is a 24 seven grind. And like, if you can't do it with people that you like, um, it's just like, it's terrible. Like it really like screws you with psychology. Like 2018, it was just me and Johannes. I love Johannes, but like, wow, like that was like lonely, right? Yeah. Um, so I, after learning that, I was like, hey, like never again, I'm gonna like next bear market, I need to, um, well, one is bill for the, you're always building for the bear market because you know it's always coming. And then two, like just, you know, hire and surround yourself with people um, that you can collectively get through like the, the toughest, you know, the, the tougher times, right? And so for me, it's really like, I want to make sure like, you know, I kind of see like Ledger Prime, it's almost like a stepping stone for a lot of the employees, right? I don't expect mm. them to be here for the rest of their life. Um, I don't expect them to be here for like five or even 10 years, but I'm hopeful that I can build a platform for them to eventually use their experience and what they've learned, whether it's money or like their exposure or brand or whatever it is to eventually start their own company, right? Or start mm. their own project or go to something bigger and better. Um, so I think that is what motivates me, um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis is like, um, hey, like I have like a bunch of friends that I've hired and now, you know, we got to collectively like do something together. Um, and, you know, that that's, I think, ultimately like what I find more pleasure in doing than, you know, just trading behind a screen, right? So.
I love that. No, I mean, it's what it made me think of is that I've, I've heard more great things come from ex Goldman's than Goldman, you know, and if you can build such a brand where your former employee base is behind so many incredible, I mean, whether it's, you know, Joseph Lubin, you know, Ethereum and whatnot. Um, I mean, I think crypto is littered with it. Uh, Mona from Avantgarde, I believe, you know, she uh, ends on finance. She was also at Goldman, right? So like where you build such a legacy in the team, the people you write, bring up, so to say that that's incredible. And even now I, I spent more time myself thinking about that as I'm hiring more, growing the firm more. It's actually pretty, not pretty, incredibly fulfilling, you know, yeah. um, being able to impact people's lives in a in a meaningful way because I know we all love to like you know let's say influence a culture of the last few years has been like oh I'm impacting a million people's lives but how much are you really impacting them? Right, right there's a the, the people that you work with on a daily basis you generally have a much deeper um, you know imprint on and I think that's that's meaningful um, where can people find out more about you should they find out more about you how <laughs> yeah, do you want you them know, to I, uh, learn reach out <laughs> I should really tweet more um, <laughs> Maybe I'll start doing that, but uh, no, just, you know, check out Ledger Prime, um, talk to my wonderful, like, employees um, who are way more public um, than me um, and, and should be. Um, and, yeah, I try to do more, like, podcasts and, and speaker stuff. Um, but honestly, like, at this point, like, I'd rather, you know, people from my team do this. So Amazing. Well, I'm yeah. glad I was able to yeah. steal you and, you yeah. know, get a, a couple, you know, gems and nuggets from you because, um, you know, I think it's, um, the people that should be on podcasts more often aren't because they're busy. <laughs> and then the people that are on podcasts all the time, they're there because they have nothing else to do and they're just building a brand. So I'm sure. glad we had this. Yeah. So. No, thank you so much for having me. This is definitely like the best experience I've had. <laughs> Appreciate you, my yeah. man. All right, thanks.